and welcome. This is a little bit exciting. This is a brand new podcast called Khaki Malarkey. To be honest, you probably worked that out by the fact that you've clicked on the link that says Khaki Malarkey before you started listening. So a little bit of useless information for you there. Um, but yeah, this is a brand new venture set up by me, Zach White, and I'm also joined by the brilliant Olivia Smith. Hello. And the equally brilliant Phoebe Style. Hello. And we're trying to bring you something that's, I guess, a bit different from your standard podcast, because the plan is for this to be a sort of specifically military history review podcast. But the sort of conversation that you'd have down the pub with someone rather than the sort of really formal interviews. So before we get into sort of how it's going to work and what we're going to do, we should probably go around the room. Liv, do you want to start us off? Yeah, far away. Um, so I'm Olivia Smith, for those who don't know me. Um, I was a former Commonwealth Full Grace Commission intern. Uh, I've got a First World War Masters from the University of Essex. Um, I kind of do a lot more in public history at the moment, uh, having just done a documentary for Sky History this year called Race to Victory uh, about Churchill, Stalin and Roosevelt. Yeah, it was so cool, I have to say the least. Yeah. Um, that was to come out for V-Day this year. And now I am with these two lovely people as we do this podcast and we're really looking forward to meeting all of our lovely guests. Well, you say two lovely people. One of us is lovely. The other lovely yeah, person. Yeah, Phoebe's great. Phoebe. I absolutely Phoebe. love Phoebe. Oh, oh guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're okay, Zach, but... <laughs> Phoebe? Hey, I'm, I'm Phoebe Style. I am just finishing a master's in history, as in I'm literally handing in my dissertation in four days' time. So if I am completely frazzled and ridiculous this episode... Please bear with me. <laughs> um, but no, it's going well. I kind of study uh, gender history in war. I find it really interesting. Um, yeah, I'm planning to do a PhD in the British Army post-World War II. So we'll see how that goes. Lots of trips to the National Archives in my future. So <laughs> yeah, see you down there. Yeah, we'll meet you there, girl. <laughs> and then you've got me. Um, this is a bit of an odd one for me because the running joke every time I go to a conference is that <laughs> That I'm a, look like I'm about 12 years old, um, which oh, is basically. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying I look like an old man or I look like a four year old instead of a 12 year old, Liv? Oh, I'll let you answer that. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, I'm used to being sort of the youngest person in the room. But that's not the case with this one because um, me being 28 and doing a PhD and, and long since past my best, I'm joined by two people who are a few years younger than me and at sort of a fraction of the earlier stage in their career, albeit much more prolific than I am. So I'm kind of the old guy in the room. And it was <laughs> God, I'm, Love yeah, it. wow. Describing 28 as the old guy in the room is, is interesting. Yeah. But also, yeah, I'm just 23 and bumbling my way through things, just seeing how things go. So hopefully we can encourage a few more yes. 20-somethings to get involved in uh, military history. Well, I think that's kind of part of the point, isn't it? that we want to kind of give, I mean, we're going to talk more about the podcast and its aims in a second, but we want to give people from a number of different walks of life a voice through this. And so as part of that, having three presenters under 20 is kind of giving a slight favour of what one aspect of the next generation of military history is talking about. Yeah, to, I think um, it's unique. You know, you don't see many people under 20s really into military history, do you? So here we are. We're going to change the path now. We are historical influences. 
Um, <laughs> the people that are just listening and can't see the screen for this, uh, I'm wearing a historical influencer t-shirt, <laughs> going in strong. <laughs> yeah, so I'm Zach White, um, PhD researcher at Southampton University. I also present the podcast The Napoleonicist, which kind of clues in the name, it's focused on the Napoleonic Wars. Um, imaginative titling there. Uh, I do a lot of work for the British Commission for Military History alongside Phoebe. I run their Next Gen Network and some of their social media output and stuff. We'll talk mm -hmm. about the research in a second. Um, yeah, I'm just a bit of a, a kind of war nerd, I guess. Um, I've been... Oh, we all. That's why we're here. <laughs> That's why we're sat here doing a podcast called Khaki Malarkey. <laughs> you know, I hesitate to say that we love a war because that sounds a bit kind of psychotic. Yeah, exactly. yeah, you have to be careful introducing yourself as a military historian these days. <laughs> Just sound like a war fanatic. We should probably talk about how we got into all of this as well. Not so much the podcast, but military history. Where did it all start for you, Fabi? I found a box in my parents' loft, just absolutely full of all my grandparents' stuff. And there was just loads of really interesting. So both my granddad served in World War II, both in the Navy. Um, and I just was fascinated by everything. My granddad, before he died in 2004, had started collecting a lot of stuff, but I was a little bit too small to understand it at that time. So it's really nice to kind of look back on what he'd done 15 years later um, and like continue putting the pieces together, which is fascinating. I've also just acquired a book full of postcards from the First World War, which is where my great granddad served um, in the Devonshire Regiment, because they were from Taunton. So yeah, that's my introduction to military history, I guess, just through my, my own family history. What was in the box in the attic? What did you find? Oh my God. So there was lots of medals um, that I had to kind of decode, I guess. I asked my dad a lot of things. Oh yeah, my dad, massive influence on why I'm in history as well. Like he, you know, we love a war documentary. We love a chat about war, <laughs> about nerdy World War II stuff. Um, yeah. So oh, what else was in the box? There was loads of postcards. So that's really nice because you can see like what they were writing home to their mums, <laughs> oh, so <laughs> which lovely. is really sweet. Um, yeah, lots of just lots of pictures as well. There's the amount of tiny little torn out pictures, some that are just like a corner of a, a bigger picture as well. So just trying to put faces together and find out who's who is a big part of it. But yeah, enjoying it, ploughing through. <laughs> Back, what got you into military history? Where did it begin? I don't know where it began actually because it's been going on so long I mean it's history in some form has kind of been my entire life since I was 11 um, because before I between my MA and starting a PhD I was a history teacher as well but I kind of fell into history as a kind of second choice I loved it all the way through school and uni but I wasn't going into history or military history as a career I was going to be um, an air traffic controller actually at one stage and then completely screwed up that entry <laughs> exam um, <laughs> and so kind of ended up doing a, a, an MA off the back of it, went off to teach, loved it and I wouldn't say loathed it but kind of cared a bit too much about it and so it kind of ended up taking over my life as you know as these things sometimes can. But in terms of the military history, I mean I can remember being a kid and kind of reading as a slightly precocious kid reading kind of military history books um, but the Napoleonic stuff really came in when I was about 13 and I was reading Bernard Cornwell Sharp's theories and he has little historical notes at the end of his books and I just read those and in a slightly kind of cliche moment 
thought, you know, one day it'd be amazing if I could write something like that. And then kind of dismiss that as, yeah, but, you know, you don't have the expertise. You're never going to be in that situation. And yet here I am, oh, what, 15 years later, kind of on the cusp of trying to get a book published. And it's, yeah, it's slightly surreal, but it's, it's been a long, long road to get here. You manifested your dreams there. Absolutely, yeah. You, you saw it that. and you, yeah. you it happened. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but like that was your dream when you were younger and you've manifested it whether or not you thought it. It's yeah. brilliant. Do you know, I met Bernard Cornwell. Um, yeah, a couple of years ago, just before I started my PhD. And I tried to kind of explain to him about how his books had inspired my interest in history. And it, I mean, he said all of the right, all the nice kind of things, but I swear behind his eyes, there was this slightly scared look of, <laughs> Okay, do I need to call security here? Have I got some guys from my hands? Why, how are you Were you like, your books are brilliant, I'm finding this, it's been so inspirational for my career, or were you like, I love you? No, the, the <laughs> first one, I wasn't quite as good as the top, top, sign me, like... <laughs> you guys have family here. Face. Yeah, Sharpie on your forehead, done. <laughs> oh, that's so lovely, Zach. Go on, Lip, what about you? Um, I feel like I was just thinking about it for me. I think I've had two little moments when we, every year when we would finish school when I was younger, my mum would take us for a treat at the summer holidays to say, well done for finishing your school year. And one of the years I went and I got the horrible history books. And I think it was the first world war and the second world war. And I just remember being really fascinated. And I could just remember being like, oh my God, there was rats in these places. This is awful. And obviously the you know, horrible history is such a good way of like making history come to life. And that was quite young. I think for me, history's always been it. I've, I've always gone through like weird pa stages of passions in history. So I moved, I lived in a lovely Victorian house when I was younger and we moved out and I was so upset about it at the age of like 11. I remember this is when computers were like in the big boxes. I can remember it was awful so using Google where it was just barely loaded. I then researched the entire area, the houses, the full lot and was just so fascinated by it. And it was for me, I was a defining moment, I think, in military history was in an English lesson. I remember coming in late because I had been to the dentist and I come in, I was so confused because she was showing say, something Private Ryan. And I was sat there thinking, this is English. Like, why on earth are we doing this? And she showed us the first 20 minutes and I was just thinking, this is really not an all, but she wanted to use it as a creative purpose to understand it. And I went home to mum and was like, God, that was really interesting. How cool is Saving Private Ryan? And she handed me then the Band of Brothers box set and was like, watch this. And I watched okay. it. Oh my God, I cried. I was hooked. I honestly, and that's when I had like a portable DVD player and no word of a lie, <laughs> from about 13 to maybe 15 every night to get me to sleep, I put a band, the Band of Brothers CD. It's like I rotated them and just had it on. I just, that was my big passion, my kind of, start into it and I just taught off the cuff like the entirety of the second world war series I think it was like the 65th anniversary or something I remember sprinting home from school the journey that could take me about <laughs> half an hour walk I did it in 10 minutes so I could get back and watch a whole evening's worth of documentaries it was brilliant I think that just kind of kickstart like my little military history interest and your journey there, here <laughs> I am like thank you yeah <laughs> Yeah, I'm always really interested, Liv, in your time with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Like, that looked so cool. You looked like you got to do some amazing things with them. Yeah, do you know what? That was honestly, I look back on my memories now because it's like two years ago I was there and it was, it makes me so sad because I had was so happy. 
like it's the most awful weather here in Norfolk right now but I would do anything to be stood on Tietbar with the winds blowing at me the rain pouring down and us had nowhere to hide and just talking to people about like the festival the song and everything and it wasn't even just like just being on the memorial because it was so emotional like people we had moments where I remember once like we walked out and we could hear this band, like a band of school kids had just set up on the memorial and it was incredible, really beautiful. And you just find yourselves like looking up at the names of the memorial and then me and the girls, and I know the boys did as well, we just find ourselves crying because you were constantly surrounded by death and you were dealing with death all the time. Like it was a lot to take in, but you had your fun times as well. Like we lived with the Canadians who worked at Beaumont Hamill and Vimy. So that was quite nice to have those, our little kind of, drunken treks into our ass um, <laughs> I took my car with me I probably one of the only intents I think to actually like we did the first two weeks of training and I was like I can't not be here and not have a car and explore so I would do things like I would drive to Tipbound in the morning and then we'd all sneak over to Avril's for lunch and some I got oh god even once and just um, on my final week I got my car stuck around the back of Y Ravine so there's like this road as you go around to Beaumont Hamill, if you guys know it. And basically it's like a bit in the storm, it's high ground. And I thought, we looked at the map and was like, oh, we could loop around, we'll come to a village and then we'll be on the road back to Arras. And it's sun was going down, it's really beautiful. And we looped around and as we were going down, I was thinking, let's get darker and darker and darker. And honestly, the road just went from, it wasn't even a road, it was a dirt track by this point. And I've got like a little 2008 Clio that thing is not designed for off-roading and I <laughs> all of the underneath was being scraped by like the mud I was like the so when we come off the track it was like the sob had clung itself to my car and I was oh like my oh my god <laughs> and I had to do the best three-point turn of my life in the bottom of Y Ravine so oh but god. you know what? it was phenomenal if I could go I would love to go back and do it but I just don't think it'd be the same because it would be the same yeah level. The centenary yeah. as well was incredible. Like, yeah, it was just so, it was just so moving. Yeah, so incredibly moving. Well, you briefed Theresa May and Emmanuel Macron, didn't you? Yes, we did. We first were told it's going to be Donald Trump, and we all kind of <laughs> protested and said we're not doing it. We were like, sorry for this bring politics on the pod, but Fair play. we all kind yes. of were like, coming. <laughs> get it in there early. <laughs> yeah, we were like, we're not, we're not doing it. We're like, we don't agree with him. It's not, you know, why should we? And then literally days before, they, so they came on the Friday and two, I think the Monday we all got told they were coming. Originally it was only going to be two interns and then it got changed to like four interns. And so the day of there, it was like really odd day. They shut off the whole site. The gendarmes were turning up on like where the interns, we had like our base site around the back with all the gardeners. And I walked in to have our lunch and there was these gendarmes, or oh, I don't know, whoever they were the French military they were loading up snipers in the gardener's center and I was like oh my god this is serious stuff right now and they all then walked through and positioned themselves on the top of the memorial and no one like about two to three hundred gendarmes hid themselves on the entire site of Tietbao and we were just like what the hell is going on this is insane and so for us when we were still at the bottom waiting for them we had like I think it must have been six to eight snipers just facing on us had all these gendarmes staring at us and then we had the world's like press pen right behind us and it was awful when they started walking down all you could hear is the shutters or the paparazzi mm. and that made me so nervous because I was like oh my god it's like the eyes of the world were watching us not the one I saw in the footage they didn't care about me giving my tour no they cared about Teresa and what that <laughs> wrong were nodding along to me and I was thinking but <laughs> that was an incredible experience we also met Bear Grylls 
I don't find oh my god we so, so bear turned up because he was with his family and he had um he was on a private tour and i don't know if there's anyone from the commission listening to this i am sorry i was sometimes when we deal with certain guests and certain people on site we would have the key to get up to the top of the memorial because you couldn't always get up um health and safety obviously and yeah. on that day we had it because we had to go up for a media purpose and bear turned up and we just kind of went do you want to go to the top of the memorial? <laughs> so we snuck him and his family all the way to the top. And um, <laughs> there's a couple of photos of us up there with him. And he said, wow, we're not like, what an incredible view. Not look at the Somme, look at this incredible spectacle. He went, if I had a parachute, I'd love to jump off this right now. We were all like, really? <laughs> of all things oh, to say right now. God. <laughs> you see a German trench right in front of you, like high court. He was like, if I had a parachute, I could just... <laughs> <laughs> Zach's face says it all. But we can't see Zach kind of head shaking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm now trying to rearrange my face, but yeah, I, I was going to ask what was Bear Grylls like, and I kind of suspected that that might be the answer. Um, yeah. I mean, he was he was cool, but that was a bit of a moment oh, where man. we all just kind of looked at each other and were like, "Yeah, we're going down now." Like. <laughs> <laughs> We should probably stop kind of reminiscing, shouldn't we? And, and actually start talking about the podcast and military history yeah, and, and yeah, that's proper kind of businessy stuff, shouldn't we? So yeah. <laughs> the name, we, we've got to give this to Phoebe. Yeah. Phoebe, the name, oh, Kaki Malaki. <laughs> you, this, my is, dear. this is your genius. Take yeah. us through it. Well, I mean, no, I can't really say it's my genius. I think uh, the three of us went through, God, how many names did we brainstorm? Like 30, 40? Like, it was ridiculous. Just so many. I don't really know what came into my head with Kaki Malaki. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. Like, it just made me laugh. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's um, why it's good. Loads of people love it. Because, well, the lot from that have told me they love the name because it's funny. And yeah, it's, it's just a satisfying word to say. Yeah, it rolls off the tongue nicely as well. <laughs> just, just a bit of malarkey in this episode, yeah, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what we're going to be doing, just talking malarkey. So, well, we're... yeah, I thought that's what it was all about. We want to have something that's informal and non <laughs> totally non-scary like yeah we can chat about anything it's fine we'll go really left field if you have a random interest in history we want to talk about it we want to know about it <laughs> Zach you touched upon a bit like on the podcast and what we want to do but you kind of seem to know the ins and outs of details and the discount details too better than I and think maybe Phoebe yes. would so please can you explain yeah so the idea is that this will go out weekly um we'll speak to a different author of a book that's come out within the last probably two to three years. Some of them will be really kind of hot off the press releases. Others are going to have been around a little bit longer. They might have made their way to paperback um, by the time we're talking to their authors. But the idea is that once a week we have somebody from a different period of military history and all kinds of aspects. So whether it's gender and military history, whether it's something perhaps a little bit more traditional like a strategic study or uh, anything in between, whether it's politics, economics, you name it, we're interested in all of the different angles because I think far too often military history kind of gets pigeonholed um, and we're not really interested in pigeonholing at all we're just kind of interested in as as Phoebe said kind of really left field stuff as well as the mainstream stuff so lots of different periods everything from ancient through to kind of ultra contemporary um, and as as you said where we can we're going to try and get our listeners an exclusive discount as a kind of thank Ooh. you yeah yeah 
I, I should have kind of put a more of a sort of greatest showman vibe. <laughs> But yeah, there's going to be a discount. Can I get an ooh? Mm. Ooh! Oh, <laughs> Phoebe, didn't want an ooh? <laughs> We've done my ooh. Okay, separate oohs for that one, Jack. <laughs> I'd love to say we'll sort that in the edit, but I'm really not going to. Anyway, there will be... <laughs> there will be discounts. Um, not on every title, because some publishers are a little bit um, less keen on the concept. But if we can't get a discount from the publisher, uh, directly then we'll try and find out for you where you can get it at a bit of a discount um, but yeah where we can we're getting bespoke discount codes anything from 10 to 20 percent off the title so the idea is that having kind of had your interest heightened by the interview and getting a little bit of a sense of the book and where it goes and what it's about you then have the ability to get it at a kind of a cut rate students keep your ears open <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely well, actually, have a lot of student input into this yeah, exactly. Because that's another point, isn't it? That, I mean, one of the things we've been trying to work into our plans is that every fourth week, we're going to give the platform over to a student, somebody who is, and that's not kind of age specific, because this always gets on my nerves when people go, oh, young yeah. people studying military history. That's not what this is about. When we say student, it can be a mature student who's kind of always had that interest and then found the time in retirement to indulge in that interest. And they're doing as important work as people like us who were you know a few a few decades younger Fresh out of uni. <laughs> exactly. just going straight into it <laughs> and in terms of how people can um kind of stay in touch with us we have our own twitter account at khaki malaki um we are also pushing the podcast out on various social media um platforms but also crucially on lots of podcasting platforms so although the admin takes a little bit of time it's going out on spotify uh, apple crucially where most people seem to get their podcasts these days uh, but also some of the lesser known ones like Podbean, Anchor FM, um... Spotify. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Spotify. Um, there are others which the I can't remember. Lot. We'll be everywhere. We'll be genuinely. We'll, we'll be, be everywhere. everywhere. You will not be able to escape us. <laughs> you wish that you could escape us, but you won't be able to. So much irony with the car key, you know, because it disappears. But yeah, I know. <laughs> but that's, that's what you get when you add in some malarkey. <laughs> <laughs> and we should also say that we'll also be publicising through the British Commission for Military History, which is a, as the name suggests, a military history organisation that we have an affiliation with, in part because myself and Phoebe um, have a lot of, of well, we, we work essentially for the Commission, we're volunteers, but we are on their, their general committee. So we're amongst the people who kind of run the organisation and develop the, the, the reforms and the agendas that keep driving the organisation forward. Phoebe, do you want to say anything about the BCMH? Or in my case, I was going to say I basically just tweet for them. I, <laughs> I mainly deal with the social side of it as well. Zach won't take credit for the fantastic work you've been doing recently um, as well. But yeah, we've got all sorts of things running for that. But yeah, it's basically just fits in with our aims uh, with the podcast as well to essentially make military history enjoyable and accessible to everyone. Like, yeah, it's, it's not an elitist group. Like, <laughs> we just want everyone to join. Yeah, it's funny because that's, I mean, there are a lot of misconceptions with the BCMH, aren't there? The, and people often kind of say this to me, oh, isn't it kind of an elitist dining club for kind of older men, perhaps in tweed jackets, who sort of like to drink <laughs> lots of wine? Um, and, and there's nothing wrong if you're an elderly gentleman in a tweed jacket. Who likes oh, to drink join in with wine. that. I love wine. Aww. I love tweed. Come on. 
<laughs> if you like wine and drink, I'll settle by in a club. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> yeah, disappointed now. Part of me is relieved it's not that. Go on, Zach. Who are they then? Yeah. So, I mean, the other thing that often comes across, as Phoebe said, is that is the BCMH elitist. Um, and the answer to those things is no, because in, in the most brutal sense possible, if that was what they would like, I wouldn't be working for them. And I'm pretty sure that I can say the same for Phoebe. You know, yeah, we're not definitely. interested in elitism. We're not interested in kind of furthering those stuffier perceptions about what military history used to be, but isn't anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and the BCMH is essentially about being a broad church. It's, it aims to sit at the kind of the cross section between the popular and the academic. And I think that's possibly why some people get confused about it. Because yeah. some academics, it's not rigorous enough and it's not formal enough. But then for the what I would kind of call the public, the proper public, actually some people kind of think that it is stuffy and it is elitist in a way. But it's it's about reaching out to academia, to the armed forces, crucially, where people who really understand warfare actually spend their lives engaging mm-hmm. in warfare and having an exchange of ideas there. But also about reaching out to the public, people who are just love military history people like ourselves really who perhaps yeah. just have the opportunity to go and study it at university um and so a lot of what the work a lot of the work that myself and phoebe are doing are about opening up opportunities within the organization <laughs> to kind of help and demonstrate that so one of the things we're looking at particularly is making it clearer that people can get funding from the organization if they're a member um, so we're looking at, at all sorts of uh, measures, whether that's funding for conferences, research trips, and so on. It's been there for years as a facility, but people just don't know about it. Um, Phoebe's doing great work on the social media side of things, kind of helping to reach out to people. We're also looking at what we can provide for students. So I run their next gen network, which, as we kind of said about, you know, <coughs> students aren't necessarily young people. It's about bringing people who are doing cutting edge research in an early stage of their career, whether that's doing a PhD whether that's an early career researcher or it's somebody who's just come out of an MA or a BA and they're really enthusiastic and they just want to kind of meet other people, the Next Gen Net is designed to kind of help facilitate that and to make people more aware of opportunities like funding and, and jobs and, and so on. So they're doing a lot to try and reach out um, beyond the sort of traditional military history. They also have a journal, so that, you know that traditional element is still there. They have a, a free journal, crucially, which a lot of organizations <laughs> do um so that it's not this kind of pay to view thing it's freely available the british journal for military history um and and i think that the commission is really proud of that fact that they don't charge for that kind of benefit which normally you'd only get mm-hmm. if you if you paid mm-hmm. for it um, and matthew ford the guy who set up the the journal did brilliant stuff in terms of formulating it. and it's now under richard grayson at goldsmiths so it's it's a really kind of ambitious organization People sometimes go, well, don't you need a, a sponsor to join? It's true there is something on the, <coughs> the membership form that says, do you have a sponsor? Now, for a long time, what we've actually said is that if you don't know someone in the BCMH, we're not fussed. Because the bottom line is, it's £30 a year to join, which is quite a lot, we acknowledge. But there are significant benefits to that, like you get access to conferences. We try and get you discounted rates for events. Um, you get access to the funding pots free access to the AGM, which has a lecture. We're also working on online events. So you get a lot for your money. Um, But if you're prepared to give us 30 quid a year, our stance is, well, we're very grateful for that. And so- We will make it worth your while. Yeah, well, that's the we aim to serve to please, right? 
Um, <laughs> and so if you don't have a sponsor, then the membership secretary will just ask any questions if there are any when people kind of have a look through your application and just make sure that you're not some random nutter, um, which is <laughs> what the application is designed to do. Help us to understand you a little bit more so that we can serve your interests a bit more effectively. Help perhaps with networking if you're interested in that and kind of put you in touch with other people within the organisation who have those shared interests. But also make sure that you're not kind of one of these nut jobs who just make stuff up from nowhere and kind of produces fake history, as sadly some people tend to do. Hunting Hitler. <coughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you to mention that. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Don't get me started. So yeah, that, that's Hunting the Hitler Three times Luke Daly Groves will appear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be so good. I'm excited about that. Oh, okay, Zach. How can people join? Did we cover that? We, we sort of did, but there is a there's yeah. a membership form on the website okay. at bcmh.org.uk. Yes, I'm very sorry. It's thirty pounds a year. Um, that's good. You get but, quite a lot from yeah. it, like you said. Yeah, that's the idea. And and you're engaged in kind of trying to develop military history um, because we're trying to push the boundaries. We have annual conferences, like a, a new researchers conference, um, that is all about kind of the cutting edge. And I think that's why the the organisation was keen to be involved with this podcast because it's another kind of way of helping to give people platforms. Yeah, to be honest, that's not just something that the, the BCMH has a problem with. I think it's the whole of military history kind of gets this reputation. I know, Zach, you probably have more experience with that. You've been in the field a bit longer than me. So what would you say? Yeah, I mean, the way I, all I can go is off my own experiences, but I have to say I've been quite relieved to find that what I experience isn't just unique to me. A lot of people kind of get the same kind of thing, where as an academic military historian, academic in inverted commas. I go to these conferences and sometimes, you know, other historians are absolutely lovely people and they mean it in the nicest possible way. But you end up, if you say you're a military historian, you kind of get these slightly backhanded compliments. People sort of turn around to you and go, but I wasn't expecting your paper to be as interesting as it was. <laughs> and, and you get these sort of slightly patronizing smiles from people that sort of say, yeah, but you're a military historian. That's not proper history, is it? And initially I thought it was just me and, and me kind of nerding out about my, my interest in military law during the Napoleonic era. But I've spoken to other people who are military historians and they find the same kind of thing happening. And so I think it's just kind of this anarchy perception that people have that, you know, military historians are these people who, I don't know, fixate over the, the shade of gold that a button should be on a uniform from a particular year. And if, if mm. you get it wrong then you're a bad historian because of that or or that you know we're all men usually white men um mm -hmm. well, more advanced in age yes yeah <laughs> um sort of go, going on about you know musket accuracy statistics it, it's that kind of perception i think and i think perhaps the issue is that people haven't realized What's I think it's, it's it's much it's much more broad than that. I mean, even my own my own interest in military history is masculinity and like gender theory and the way that masculinity is constructed within like military institutions and uh, the way the language, the war, like the discourse around war is actually talked about. So I think that's yeah. There are many different. I mean, gosh, we had messages about people that wanted to look at like, dogs in military history, like war dogs, and um, the eight. 
two years war eight years war a war that i don't even know about but there's just so many things like there's so many different aspects um to history that people don't realize that are there and that can make it so much more interesting for them um and yeah that material is out there and that's why we wanted to do this podcast like as to uh get people to see that history can be accessible and it, there will be things in it that you enjoy don't be put off by the prior conceptions of military history because i mean yeah when, <laughs> when i was sort of explaining to people oh i'm doing a podcast it's, it's called khaki malarkey their, their faces kind of said it all and they were like um <laughs> that sounds fun <laughs> but we do want to make it fun and we do want to try and change that perception that military history is boring and really oh we're just going to be discussing battlefield plans in depth for 20 minutes every week you know so yeah <laughs> Liv is shaking her head that is <laughs> no not at all I was just gonna say I feel like I don't know Zach if you can input on this as a teacher as well but I think where military history is taught in schools it's kind of narrows it and I think popularizes it a bit too much that people kind of lose interest as well so you always think it's the first or the second world war and, you know, we've got some great people who are going to come on and talk about the First and Second World War, but we're not going to talk about the stuff you would have learned at school, the stuff that's regurgitated on the BBC, on commemorations or anything else like that. We want to go completely left field with this to show that there's so much depth to military history. And there's so much, like people mentioned, there's dogs, you know, there's medical side, there's politics, there's culture, there's everything else that really threads into this other than, you know, 20 minutes on where strategic offences and defences were and you know that that isn't as important to learn about as well but you know a war didn't just happen singularly on its own there's so many factors going into this I think Mm -hmm. hopefully we can kind of use this as an educative platform to maybe go away from this kind of this popular narratives that we have in society and I think that sometimes unfortunately is embedded in what is taught you know in the school syllabuses and stuff and hopefully our historians who will interview will really like kind of go against that and show the different light to it all yeah i think you're right i mean speaking with my teacher hat on i mean the curriculum has probably shifted a little bit since i was teaching even though it's not that long ago um but essentially year nine so 13 to 14 years old it's world war one world war two cold war um so bearing in mind that compulsory um history education ends in year nine so your last third the third of your course is at least uh, focused on warfare and and then you've also got things you know standard things battle of hastings another war Mm. and people like that i mean i've got to say that as a teacher when i was talking to parents and parents evenings they'd always or they'd often turn around and say you know what i loved history when i was at school and they i think warfare kind of lends itself to popular history in the sense that you've got so many factors at play and you it's very as all history is it's very kind of gritty and very real and perhaps emphasizes the best and the worst almost sort of simultaneously in a way that perhaps you don't always get um but i wonder if that kind of popularity as you say kind of ends up influencing the perception because if you walk into a a bookshop half the shelf half the history shelf is probably war yeah i think absolutely a good chunk of the rest of it is probably Tudors as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I do wonder if Tudor historians kind of find that they have students coming in and they, they always sort of bang on about, oh, I love Anne Boleyn and mm. have this sort of sense of... Yeah, I know about uh, Henry VIII. Yes, yeah, oh, yeah. There's more to it than that. And I wonder if <laughs> they have the, that same kind of feeling that perhaps the, the perception has been skewed. I also wonder oh, yeah. if... Mil- Sorry, carry on, Phoebe. No, I, I have to say just because I've I, so I've recently I don't, I'm I'm not a teacher, but I've recently started working uh, with 11 to 16 year olds in a school in learning support, and I'm in a lot of history classes, 
Um, and Zach, I will say the curriculum has kind of shifted slightly. I mean, Brilliant. I don't know if it might just be the school that I'm in, but they're starting off teaching the year sevens about the Silk Roads um, and about how different societies, and that includes like their empires and civilizations and economies. Um, and I mean, when I was at school, we started with 1066 and it was like, Britain are at the centre of everything and we do everything in history and it all starts from here. Um, but I really, really like the way that, I mean, the history department at this particular school is doing the curriculum. And I hope that is being repeated across schools in the UK. And I think it is. I, like, I think the tide is kind of turning in that way. And we are looking um, for a broader view of, of history in, in general. But definitely that is something that's easy to do with military history because a lot of wars, well, they are global. They are they are they span across a lot of areas so it, it is just such a fascinating subject to look at and yeah I'm thoroughly enjoying working with with teenagers because they're so passionate as well and when you do get into in the lessons they pick something they say oh like miss what, what does he, what do you mean by this what do they mean by this and you can explain it to them and you see kind of other heads looking round to listen to what you're saying because they do find it interesting when you find something that that relates to them or that they just pick out and they think oh that's funny <laughs> and is, then you can explain it more yeah there is no better feeling in any job than having 30 kids in a classroom buzzing <laughs> and yes. pinging off of each other about whatever topic it is i mean a big one for me that was always guaranteed to um go down well was pin the plague on the peasant uh, <laughs> that's that. brilliant um, I stole that idea off a, a good friend of mine, Emma Cree. So if you're li listening, Emma, that one's that one's your genius. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, th I think there's been talk about this change for a while of de-anglicising how we teach history in schools. Um, and certainly when I was looking at teacher training back in sort of 2013-14, we were kind of looking at Michael Goh's reforms to education and kind of going, oh, why have we gone so Anglo-centric here? I thought the idea was yeah. to kind of yeah. focus. And I think things are changing in that regard. Absolutely, um, especially like Black Lives Matter movement, so important in terms yeah. of widening the curriculum as well and educating people. That's brilliant. Oh, it sounds like it's re there's some good hope coming in for the schools and that's nice to know that our younger generations are, hopefully this will change our perspectives on the history and the, the stuff we're talking about now and the you know the viewpoints we have actually won't be the case in 10 years time if anyone else wants to start their own military podcast and we'll have loads of enthusiastic episode. young people yeah. on the walking tours Olivia. <laughs> <laughs> i wonder also if military history has kind of lagged a little bit in development and whether that's sort of part of the perception and what i'm thinking about here is kind of what somebody called recently in a conversation with me the old new military history and what they were talking about is this kind of history from below thing and it kind of made me scratch my head a bit because history from below and kind of social history as a movement has been around since what the 60s and I think what they were kind of saying is that the research that I was looking at in terms of floggings of soldiers and their ability to defend themselves against military law and so on was that part of social history or was it something else was it kind of legal history and it made me start to wonder about the extent to which perhaps military history kind of missed a step. And when I think about what was coming out in the military history scene in the 60s and the 70s, when social history was really starting to take off in unis, I kind of feel that it was still kind of history from above. It was still looking at big reforms that were taking place or still kind of focused in that um, sort of strategic um, tactical frame of mind i don't know what you guys think about it because that's just my perception 
do you know what? I think I actually agree. Because I, I think it comes back to that quote that, like, history's told by great men. Or, like, it's, you know, by the yeah, women. Yeah. So that's that imposing kind of top-down position of what we know is because it's taught by those who are telling us. And yeah. I think especially maybe within the last 20 years, and I don't know if it's changed in terms of how accessible, you know, we are to family records or to diaries and how things have been... Um, you know put online that we have a different perspective of looking at an individual now so rather than looking at say like a general or something who's written an extensive diary or works after a battle or a campaign we're actually looking at that individual and we're drumming up this history from below because we're wanting to learn about like what was the voice of the average person on the ground you know there's so like we said earlier on there's so much that makes and goes into a military you know yeah. we're kind of now <laughs> thinking we don't want to know about you know the top guys what's going on with these guys on the floor and I think that's what's changed now but I mm -hmm. think it's nice that movement's happening but definitely like you agree Zach it's some, it's been a bit of a slow burner I mean Phoebe I think like you seem like you're agreeing with me no never I was gonna say you, you you've given me the perfect opportunity to talk about my dissertation now because I mean, I'm writing about war it, correspondence yeah. I'm writing about war correspondence in World War Two, and one of the reasons that I love war correspondence particularly, I mean, I'm, I have to say Martha Gellhorn because she's just an absolute legend and I love her writing so much. Um, and the reason I love their work is because they really get to unpick that like history from below. And I love reading their coverage and they have such a, an overview. They've had, had such um, an intimate relationship with some civilians at war as well, um, as well as the troops. Um, so I really, really love that. And I think that does feed in uh, to this new military history idea. So do you think war correspondence especially so when you talk more like um, females as well actually getting a better hands-on and eyes-on approach to how we can understand it compared to obviously how like you know I just said like the great men are telling us history yeah yeah exactly no it's definitely fit into getting more of a, a bottom-up approach to history rather than being told that's brilliant Go on, Zach. yeah I mean when you think about the I'm just thinking some of the books that have come out in the last sort of decade or so things like Ed Coss's All for the King Shilling Andrew Bamford which looked at uh, the social origins of um, soldiers during the Napoleonic Wars, who have always been kind of called the scum of the earth, um, had this scum of the earth myth surrounding them, because Wellington famously turned around and described his men as scum of the earth who enlisted for drink. And in the, the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, people were kind of saying, oh, yeah, he was absolutely right. And then Ed Cost turned around and said, well, actually, if you look at the enlistment records, you'll find that's really not the case. And then we had Andrew Bamford with Sickness, Suffering and the Sword looking at, you know, what is it that motivates a soldier? Ed was also looking at motivation, it's, it's important to say. Um, then you've got Amy Fox's book that's taken... Um, a, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Oh, um, that's, and it's been, what, nominated for two awards, was yeah, it? Yeah, she's won one as well, I believe. Um, I check up on that. If not, Amy, we're awarding you an award. <laughs> Can we make a Kaki Malaki? Yeah, we'll get the first Kaki Malaki award. <laughs> but it's that kind of stuff that sort of what we would perhaps think of as really standout social history works on military history that we've had in civilian history for 20, 30, 40 years. And that's why I kind of have this perception that perhaps we're almost a generation behind. But yeah, like we said, things are changing and, yeah. and that's great. <laughs> Well, do you know what's also changing? Is how people are going to think about us on this next question for you. <laughs> I 
I really want to know Zach's answers first. So, yes. and everyone oh who's gosh. listening, I want you all to think this through as well. So, <laughs> in a game of historical snog, marry, and avoid, Zach, who would be your options? Right, I'm going to start off with the absolute shocker. And I want you to bear in mind that this is ultra, ultra left field. Okay. <laughs> and there is a point to this. And my reasoning behind this is that if you're going to snog someone from history, mm-hmm. you want it to have a kind of purpose to it. Okay. Unless they're an absolutely exceptional kisser, snogging <laughs> from someone from history isn't going to be hugely different from people's experiences of snogging anyone else. Okay. And I don't personally feel I'd want to kind of make an ego trip out of it and go, oh, you know, I, I snogged this famous person. So what's the biggest impact that you could get out of a single snog? And my theory is that with one snog, you could save millions of people from death. Oh my God. The per- <laughs> I love the amount of thought that's going into yeah, this. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the That's the one thing you could get from a snog. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> okay, go on. I have no clue. Okay. So I'm thinking Second World War here. So trying to save millions of people here. Second World War. How about averting the Second World War by preventing the rise of the Nazis? Now, <laughs> Liv's face is just an absolute <laughs> right now. So the Nazis were well known for their homophobia, right? Yeah. So theoretically speaking, if a picture were to emerge of Hitler snogging a man, then you could prevent Adolf Hitler from becoming the leader of the Nazi party due to the Nazis' homophobic beliefs and therefore prevent the Second World War in the form that we know it from happening, full stop. So my historical <laughs> snog, coming with the caveat that I want a year's supply of industrial strength mouthwash because it's Hitler. <laughs> Gross. And his Nazi yeah. yeah. Would be Hitler. Wow. But only I on don't a, even know what to make of that. <laughs> well, look, I need only in order to that. save millions of people and prevent a world war. Okay. Well, I like the reasoning behind that. There's a lot of thoughts gone into it. You know, okay, Zach. Uh, okay. Well, who would you marry and avoid then? Okay, so the avoid, Game of Thrones spoiler for people who haven't watched the final series of Game of Thrones, all right? My avoid would be Boudicca. Much though I love the whole kind of gutsy woman, you know, leading from the front in a time when, in a male-dominated society, okay, so the Romans were male-dominated and the the Celts perhaps less so, Mm. but turning a horrendous experience into a movement that was able to gather momentum um, for what seems to be pretty just causes. On many levels, Boudicca is absolutely brilliant, and you might think a contender to marry, but a bit like Daenerys Targaryen, she had a habit of burning down cities. <laughs> and I just kind of can't deal with it's that. It's quite stressful, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's just a little bit too psychotic for me. Um, and so to kind of avoid that Game of Thrones vibe, Boudicca would be my avoid. And my marry is kind of a little bit more traditional. Um, there's a, it has a Napoleonic theme to it. So there's a very famous romance um, over the course of the Peninsula War 
between a guy called Harry Smith and his Spanish wife, Joanna Smith, who, for those people who know about South Africa, Lady Smith is named after because after the Peninsula War, um, Harry went on up through the ranks and they went out to uh, South America where he was governor, sorry, South Africa, where he was governor. Um, and they met in really horrendous circumstances at, at a siege, siege of Badahoff. Now, Joanna and her sister were fleeing from British soldiers who in the aftermath of taking the city went absolutely mental. And for 48 hours, they were plundering, murdering and raping their way through the city and nothing that the commanders could do, particularly Wellington, could actually do anything to stop that. And these two women had actually had their earrings torn out of their ears by um, British soldiers, somehow managed to get away. And they came across these two officers, knew the, the fact that an officer was gonna be more of a gentleman, more respectable, so they kind of took shelter. By the end of the evening, Joanna and Harry were absolutely smitten and it became one of the, the best known um, romances of the war. They married um, within a couple of days of meeting and she was absolutely devoted to him um, to the point where she would always, she, you've got to bear in mind that campaigning during this time was absolutely horrendous. For a lot of the time they didn't have tents. Um, the, the food was appalling if they had any. The, you were exposed to the elements. The hardships were incredible. She stayed with Harry every single step of the way. In the aftermath of battles, she would trail the battlefield looking for him to make sure that he was all right. There's a really famous story after Waterloo that she was told incorrectly that a Major Smith had died and she thought it was Harry and she was absolutely distraught and she was searching the battlefield trying to find his body only to be told that no, Harry's fine. He's, I've, I've seen him you know, five minutes ago. And, and you, when you read the relief that kind of pours into her, her recollections, it's just so moving. There is a caveat to this, which is that when Harry and Joanna met, Joanna was 15, which is a problem. Um, and so oh, we'll it's okay. I'm saying Joanna Smith when she wasn't a teenager. So, <laughs> so not Joanna Smith as a teenager, but in terms of that, the purity of that love story. Um, yeah, Joanna Smith that is my marriage. That would make it such a good film. Yeah, that would, wouldn't it? Make it. We should sell the rights. <laughs> Yeah, no, right, <laughs> Who wants to go next? Liv, do you want to do yours? I feel like mine's not going to be as advanced as that. <laughs> I mean, mine's definitely not had as much uh, detail put into the backstory yeah. as that. But I'm, I'm <laughs> okay. Well, for me, the one I, yeah, this really hasn't got as much detail as Zach, and it's not thought through. To be quite honest, I said I'd snog young Stalin because he's just a dick <laughs> and a half. Like, if you Zach, so go have a look now at young Stalin's photo. Yes. He does look like a young Zayn Malik. Like, yes. yeah, I, the, I mean, I... The, the psycho on, you element. Kiss, you said you kissed Hitler, you kissed Hitler. So really... Yes, in order, to, in order to avert a second yeah. world war. Yeah, but I, I just, you know, I'm just there having a couple of drinks and, you know, I've bumped into young son at the bar and he's trying to talk to me about communism, but I don't really care. So I've just <laughs> kind of got my kiss and gone on with my day. But, and then but, I hit so bourgeois. Like, done, you know, and I'm just thinking, oh, Christ, I kissed that guy. But, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to anything. Oh, I'm God, that was a drunk snog. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we've all been there. Yeah, you <laughs> to forget, and then you won't <laughs> who it was because really he ends up being that person. But yeah. that's kind of by you know snog. 
I said I would, I don't know why I thought this, the person I would like to marry, and I guess it's quite shameful as well, is uh, Louis Fourteenth, simply because I'd love to live in Versailles. <laughs> and like when it's yeah. festival, I could see myself walking down one of those dresses in the Hall of Mirrors and just oh, being yeah. like, wow. But I mean, he wasn't the best man. So I don't he know, maybe the I'd be- least a... faithful husband in the history it, of- Yeah, but then it, it would work in my favor <laughs> because really I'd get all the luxuries. He could go be with whoever he likes and I could enjoy the palace, you know, the gardens are wonderful. You know, I could do the whole Mary Antoinette, be put in the corner of the gardens if you've ever been. You know, her house is like a mile and a half away from the actual Versailles. So you could have your wonderful life. That's kind of my thinking of it. Obviously, yeah. if it wouldn't happen, I probably would have been divorced or something. But I was thinking, imagine living in somewhere like Versailles. Incredible. Um, Stalin's going to hate I, this. This is so catalytic. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's poor Stalin. Um, and then I said I would avoid, the first person that comes to my mind was Henry VIII. You know, I can't be asked to be dealing with a temperamental man like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. all right. It's too much drama. You're changing your religion. You're changing your wives. You can't make up your mind. No woman likes inconsistency in a man. You know, He's very needy as well. Oh, Seems so just super, super needy. Why would you want that? And, and the temper problem. I mean, unless it's a bit of popular history, but from what I've heard, he doesn't seem like a calm guy. And I sometimes have a bit of a temper, and I think with butt heads a bit. So I think it would be good to. Kind of- <laughs> Boy, you'd butt heads and then you'd lose your head so yeah, yeah exactly so i'm you know, not here for any beheading so definitely on the avoid list I think, yeah. yeah yeah so that's quite fun <laughs> <laughs> what about you baby right well like i said i'm writing on world war ii at the moment so i've got my world war ii hat on nice. um i'll go in i mean i've got two war correspondents and a general so Ooh, okay <laughs> we'll, we'll start with the um okay marriage mentioned already Martha Gellhorn oh my god can you imagine I would be a better wife than Ernest Hemingway was as a husband <laughs> honestly we'd have so much fun drinking martinis and traveling around the world that would be fantastic we'd make the dream team so definitely Gellhorn to marry and then and this is gonna <laughs> this hopefully will make people laugh but I put as my snog Alan Wicker <laughs> now that in the yeah. same way that Stalin is attractive young man yeah. I think Wicker back in the day, a bit of Wicker's War. Yeah. yeah I, get that. That. I get that. Love it. Love it. And he just seems like, you know, just, just have that like one a cool guy. It. War correspondents. Yeah. I yeah. think I just am a bit of a fangirl for war correspondents in general, but yeah. they are a cool bunch. Very um, which brings me to my avoid, which is um, <laughs> General George Patton, who is written about highly by war correspondents for the incidents that took place where he slapped traumatized soldiers and blamed PTSD on the Jews. So he is definitely one to avoid because honestly, he seemed like a bit of an arsehole. No, a massive arsehole actually. Um, so yeah, if I, I definitely, if, if I was in World War II, I'd be hanging around with the war correspondents and just avoiding the shitty generals. <laughs> I think that sounds quite good actually. Yeah. <laughs> so there we go now you know all three of us a little bit better <laughs> uh, i think it's fair to say that people have either tuned out or they're tuning in more so <laughs> we we're here we probably lost half of our, our audience already it, it doesn't yeah, i think it might have gone on the kissing hitler bit but it's not yeah. Hitler. Yeah. Bang. <laughs> cheers zach <laughs> well okay i guess that comes to you so rather than anything in a more romantic sense if there was one person in history you were down the pub on a friday night and you could buy them a drink. Ooh. Who would it be, Zach? Okay, I'm going to be really Machiavellian here. Okay. 
Okay. I'm writing on crime and punishment in the British Army during the Napoleonic Wars. It would help me so much if I could just just speak to one person and mine them for information so that I could piece it all together and get this thesis finished. Because military discipline during this era was just kind of this mishmash and you've got different people trying to change it for different reasons and they've got their own priorities and it, it's such a mess trying to unpick it all. So I would go for the guy who ended up becoming Speaker of the House um, not Speaker of the House of Commons, Charles Manners Sutton, who was the Judge Advocate General. Um, not somebody who features on anybody's radar. You'll have to look him up on Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Um, yeah. Also on Wikipedia, you'll, you'll find something on him. <laughs> um, but yeah, if I could just have an evening talking to him, supply him with drinks, buy him off, um, see what he's like drunk because that's always interesting um, kind of seeing what these people are like whether they're what they say in their letters is actually true uh, so that would be interesting but yeah that, that's that's my one and it's completely selfish sorry to disappoint there <laughs> no I think that's an interesting one it was helpful wasn't it go on Phoebe what be yours oh see I'm again I've, I've been thinking I'm thinking and rethinking about mine I was the first thing that came into my head was Winston Churchill Again, with the World War II hat on, not yeah. that I think he was a particularly nice person, but then he was an interesting figure. And I would really like to, like, I think it was most interesting about um, history of Churchill is that it's so complex and there are many different factors. Um, and obviously he's a guy come up again recently. So, uh, so I just, yeah, I would love to ha have a chat with him. He'd be interesting. Yeah, it'd be good to pick his mind, I think, because yeah, so, like perceptions and people can keep writing books and everything about him, but yeah. like until you can sit him down and be like, What's the interviews that Piers Morgan does? You know, the kind of those, ones yes, sit exactly. him down and I need like, to do that. Yeah, I need to divulge your brains and your mindset behind it. I think that would be a brilliant one. Yeah, what about you, Liv? I think I'd go for Gloria Steinman. I've just Ooh. watched Mrs. America. If you haven't, it's on BBC iPlayer. It's a little plug. And that so keeps being recommended incredible. to me. I need to get oh on it. Oh my God, it was incredible. So it's all about the um, feminist movement in America in the 1970s. And they talk about, you've got one band of women who are obviously all for the Equal Rights Amendment and getting that through. Then you actually, it shows you, this, and it's all true that there's a whole wave of women that were so against any equals right movement going through. And mm. they all were like, I am my husband's, you know, woman. My husband tells me what to do. I'm a housewife, a mother. That is it. And that's my sole purpose. But then Gloria Steinman was such an advocate. Good boy, Zach, putting your thumbs up. <laughs> um, yeah, she was such an advocate for, you know, women and just kind of being so progressive. And I, even now she is. And I think it'd be fascinating just to kind of really pick her brains or just being like, you know, what is it to be a modern feminist? And, you know, where the journey she's come to where we are now and what does she think of, you know, even 40 years ago, the change that women have got? Well, I'd love to yeah. know her conclusions of how far we've gotten so far. So mm -hmm. I think she'd be great. Yeah, that would be such an interesting one. What I noticed about this is that none of us would buy somebody from history a drink as a thank you. We'd all do it. <laughs> Just so we could pick their brains. Yeah. For just selfish reasons, yeah. <laughs> Who would you want to say thank you to, though? I don't oh, know. Yeah. That's, another, that's another one. <laughs> I mean, Florence Nightingale's an obvious one, isn't she? Oh, yeah, um, that's very true. I feel, yeah, it turns like medicine, like Louis Pasteur and who I just read the incredible... Mary uh, Curie. Mary Curie, I just did a book on. Um, uh, Joseph Lister. Oh, you know, yes. all of those. Like, that's a brilliant book, The Butchering Art, if you haven't read that one. Um, not kind of involves a bit of military history, but not too much. But yeah, those I think those people deserve a good thank you. 
A round of Jaeger bomb, thank yous. <laughs> God, I'd love to do a Jaeger bomb with Winston Churchill. That'd I'm not sure it was a Jaeger bomb man. I think it was more <laughs> I reckon he'd sip it. <laughs> yeah, he would. <laughs> Bless him. So I guess that leaves us. Zach, what have we got coming up over the next month? We've got a lot coming up, haven't we? So we're going to start our proper interviews, our kind of proper podcasts. So we've got our first proper podcast starting on Tuesday, the 6th of October. That's going to be with Paul Crystal, who wrote Women in Ancient Warfare. Then the following week, we've got Rebecca Riddell, who wrote the brilliant 1666 Plague, War and Hellfire. Then the girls are, I mean, the girls are excited about everything, but we've got James Holland <laughs> coming on. Um, <laughs> I won't tell you the faces and hand gestures that just got pulled there, but um, we, we're quite excited about that one. Um, talking to James about his new book, Sicily, 1943. And then in the final week of that month, we're going to be talking to Jack Abernathy about the 80 Years War, and that will be the first of our um, focuses on, on PhD students. It's I'm excited. I hope you guys are. Yes, <laughs> you can tell by our faces, if you can see the screen right now, we're absolutely buzzing. <laughs> this is it. I mean, it's only going to get bigger and better as well. So Yes, for sure. We've got this. Right. So follow us on Twitter, at Kaki Malaki. Uh, we will be um, back in a week. In the meantime, you can also follow at Mars underscore Cleo for the British Commission for Military History. You can follow me at Zed White History. You can follow Liv at... Olivia Smith Hist. And Phoebe at... At Phoebe Style, but uh, zero instead of an O. <laughs> or if you just search Angry Feminist, you'll find it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that works as well. I always forget that one. They're like, whoa, your Twitter is Angry Feminist. <laughs> Forgot that. <laughs> I love it. So we will see you all in a week. Thanks very much for joining us. This is Kaki Malaki signing off. Bye. Bye.